after Exodus, after the uh, defeat of the uh, Egyptian king and the, uh, all the chariot riders, um, we find uh, Moses and the Israelites meet uh, together by Mount Sinai, this place where uh, Moses met God on the burning bush. And there's this dramatic scene where Moses goes up this uh, mountain and he goes up there to meet with God. And it's a moment of seriousness. You know, anyone that comes near the mountain, you know what, they're, they're going to die. So it's a case of somberness. It's, it's a moment of reverence. You know, we're going to encounter this God who did amazing things, who struck down the Egyptians uh, and brought plagues to deliver Israel from their uh, tyranny. And uh, it's a moment of significance. You know, this is the moment where Israel is going to learn more about the God they serve. Suddenly they're going to encounter him and find out afresh what this Yahweh, this God that showed himself to and revealed his name to Moses, what it involves following God. And so they are to encounter him, they are to hear from him, and they are to know what it means to be led by our way. And there, there is this feeling of responsibility and this feeling of privilege. You know, God has chosen us to uh, uh, be used by him. And, and uh, that moment on the mountainside where there are, uh, there's lightning, where there's thunder, where there's uh, cloud, um, I think it's a, a good reflection for us to have because... Um, we come to church every week, and we also come. Uh, we've also been to other churches uh, uh, other than this one, and and sometimes we can come with a, a slightly out of whack mindset when we come to church. We can come in flippantly, you know. It doesn't matter what time I turn up, or uh, it doesn't matter what I do while I'm here. We can be self-absorbed. Oh Lord, all of these were my problems. All these things that are uh, uh, hassling me. You haven't delivered me from them. Um, or all these things that I'm hoping to happen in the next week. Um, and we can have a disposable culture where nothing really matters. Nothing ever lasts. You know, we'll go to this church for a while and then sort of wander. And sometimes um, in this culture we live in and in these mindsets our culture encourages we can sometimes forget the awe and reverence and significance that meeting with God warrants in our hearts I think and it's strange isn't it I'm asking us to learn from an old sheep farmer and a bunch of slaves I'm asking us to remember that account by Mount Sinai and say, this is something that we should be inspired by. And when you come in this morning, I'm not bothered about your clothes, what you look like, whether you've got on some weird Sunday best, or whether you've just turned up in your pyjamas. I'm not bothered about how your kids behave, whether they've run riot and caused you stress all morning or whether they've sat quietly and done something nice. What matters on a Sunday morning is your hearts. It's our hearts. And let me tell you, what happens in your hearts works its way out in your bodies. If you ask Tim, he knows which of you are worshipping in your hearts and which of you are here kind of by accident. You're, kind of happy, you're here by habit and you've suddenly found yourself at church and, but your heart's not here either. And, 
And I, I just want to encourage you, as, as we consider mountain, this mountain, as we consider Moses meeting God on Mount Sinai, that our hearts and bodies have a part to play when we consider God in worship. If we knew who God really was, if we allowed him to be who he is in our lives, distraction would be something we could let go. Our self, our aches and pains. And as I get older, I'm, I'm feeling them a little bit more. But we, those things matter a little bit less because we're meeting God Almighty, the one that we're going to spend an eternity with, the one who's building his kingdom on earth, the one who sent Jesus to die for us. Suddenly, the distractions um, and ourself become less important and he becomes bigger, become more important. Suddenly, our phones, suddenly our comfort, and suddenly what other people think gets pushed to the side. Doesn't matter how many notifications I've got on my phone. Doesn't matter if my feet are a little sore from standing. Doesn't matter so much if my arms are hurting a little from being lifted up or my palms are sore from clapping. Doesn't matter what other people think about my stance in worship. My heart and my body are going to recognise his awesomeness and is going to encounter him with a moment of deliberation. And so you have this moment on Mount Sinai with Moses meeting God. And one of the lasting aftereffects of Moses meeting God um, was uh, the, uh, the law that came down with the rules that they were to abide by. There were decrees about virtually anything you could possibly imagine and ceremonies that they were to follow. There were rules as to what they should and shouldn't do and there were uh, particular moments in their lives where they were expected to join with all the Israelites and follow a particular amount of procedures in worship to God. And if we read, and I can tell you, my, uh, the book of Leviticus is probably the least underlined in my Bible. You know, I, I'd love to be able to draw out some deep, important stuff from there. But it's just not something I go to for, for some sort of encouragement or a sermon series. Because if um, our churches aren't empty enough already, that would be a way to empty them even quicker, is to go methodically through Leviticus. But even though we may struggle with the law that was given by uh, God to Moses, it was important to the people. It was important for their covenantal relationship with God. God was going to do stuff, but the people had a responsibility to respond. And the rules that kind of turn us off, that are not the first thing we look to when we want encouragement in Scripture, they help make Israel distinct. You could point out an Israelite in the cultures of the time. And I really like it as well. You can still spot... Um, Jews passing through the airport and while they may not have exact uh, heritage that we'd like you can still spot particular cultures from afar and these laws and regulations made sure that you could see where, who a Jew was and who wasn't, who a Gentile was and so these laws helped um, uh, identify them and make them distinct these laws exposed the reality of evil, which showed that our hearts were really selfish 
And uh, we'd go, oh, yes, God, I love you. I want to follow you all my days, and I'm going to sing all the songs of Hillsong and everyone else. And then really, when it comes down to it, your behavior is dictated not by him, but by your affections and by your appetites. And the, and the laws that uh, God gave exposed that fact, that how rotten and deep sin had penetrated in the hearts of men and women. And these laws also made God an ever-present reality. If you have to follow a ceremony every, uh, uh, every day, like you had to pray every day at a particular time, or you had to follow a set of procedures for washing, or um, if something happened in your life, you had to keep yourself clean, um, made God an ever-present day reality. It was something that you had to follow. You couldn't ignore God or relegate him to Sabbath. It was someone that you were thinking about constantly. How does God think of this thing that's occurred in my life? And, and so the law, while a little boring, if I'm allowed to say that, and a little hard to grasp in our uh, culture today, it was incredibly important for the Israelites who were uh, being drawn out of all the other nations. Now, over the years, um, the Israelites were working out how to follow these rules because the, there would be a rule and then there would be a hundred different real-life situations. They had to work out how does that rule apply to that situation. And so over the years, you would have various people appointed as authorities of the law um, and how those divine instructions applied to these particular situations. And so you have lots of um, new authorities growing up, and you had um, lots of other writings. All these people that thought they were experts then wrote lots of uh, literature to explain the Torah given by God. Now, one group um, that uh, had prominence in the first century, uh, had prominence in the first century in Israel, was these religious folk known as the separated ones. That sounds very holy, doesn't it? So they were the separated ones in Israel, and uh, uh, we, we would know them as the Pharisees. They were kind of like the largest religious authority of the time. Um, there was around, there's a uh, historian, Jewish historian called Josephus, and he said there was about 6,000 Pharisees at the time. So there's 6,000 Pharisees, 6,000 experts um, in uh, Israel, and uh, they had this authority and influence. You know, they would tell you what God was saying um, about a particular situation, about what you should do in response to uh, a scenario in your life. And the general public, people, rank and file people who just wanted to follow God, they would go to them and go, well, how do we follow God in this particular scenario? What is God's will for me in this situation? And so these Pharisees, they dominated the religious landscape because everyone wants to know God, everyone wants to know his will, everyone wants to obey him in particular situations. And so the Pharisees assumed this massive significance in the religious life as Israel. And they had an aura of certainty. You know, they knew the law. They knew the rules. They knew what God wanted, even if you didn't. Um, and there was a sense of entitlement as well. I am God's chosen person on earth to let you know what you need to do. Um, you need to bestow on me reverence and privilege. And you need to uh, just recognize that I am better than you. 
And then there's this wild man, and it's difficult not to have uh, a love of John the Baptist, because he's arrives there, and he's a bit of a uh, revolution. He doesn't seek pomp and ceremony. He doesn't seek all the approval of the different people. He tells the truth quite bluntly. I don't know if you like that, but he wouldn't mess about with how he would uh, say what God wants. Um, and he was poor, you know. He didn't live in a nice house up the street. He kind of lived in the desert. He ate humbly. He didn't seek the finest uh, food. He didn't eat, seek the finest coffee. He didn't seek the finest things that um, a religious person could sort of lean on. And he was unaccountable. You know, he didn't answer to the Pharisees. He had this direct uh, relationship with God that he leaned on. And what would happen is he would be quite happily exposed the hypocrites and the people that said they were religious but really didn't know God at all. And so John the Baptist comes in, and this wild man, and with his eating of locusts and living in the desert, and baptizing them in a river where these uh, uh, Pharisees were like, Well, we've got a lovely clean temple and a nice little spring here. Why don't you do it here? But it, it, his was more of a, a, a wild, unplugged God, and, 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 it, and it drew lots of people. And uh, uh, during Jesus' day, John the Baptist still had uh, a great um, uh, sort of significance and reverence. And then Jesus. Jesus arrives, and, and um, he's a new rabbi. And he's, a, he's a man that is, is acquiring fame and acquiring devoted followers. Um, and he, too, comes into contact with these experts in what God thinks you should do in your life. And he, like his cousin John, he would, have to, he would often have some choice words for them. Um, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 23. As a, a religious leader, it's sometimes good to remind myself of the words Jesus has for the religious leaders of his time, just to, as a bit of a reality check. And um, if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, and it says this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You are hypocrites. Everyone say hypocrites. Hypocrites, you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. I just found that a really poignant image. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven on people's faces. People come to you for truth and you slam the door. That is not a sign of welcoming, that is not a sign of understanding. That is a sign of something else. And Jesus goes on, you yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law, and you Pharisees. You are hypocrites. Everyone say hypocrites. 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 Think of all the Christians and religious people um, that kind of make themselves big and tell you all the ways that you should feel guilty and how they're the best and you're small and tiny. You know, all the different sermons and teachings you've heard that have uh, just sort of neglected the love and grace of Christ and just made you feel rubbish. I want you to think of all those people and I want you to say hypocrites like you mean it. One, two, three. Hypocrite, all these hypocrites, the ones that destroy religion, that take away the power and the grace and the goodness. 
Jesus is saying, you're hypocrites. You don't know what you're doing. You're destroying faith in God. And he goes on, you travel land and sea to win a single convert. How holy is that? And when you have successful, when you are successful, you make them twice as much. And listen, Jesus doesn't pull his punches. You know, he is gracious to that woman caught in adultery. You know, he's gentle and he rescues her from death. But listen to what he calls these Pharisees. These are experts in scripture. Okay. He goes, and make you as much as a child of hell as you are. Jesus couldn't be more demeaning to these Pharisees if he tried. He's saying, you think your father's God, but your father is Satan. If you don't think there are people in church and in Christianity that um, confuse things beyond all recognition, then allow Jesus' words to wake you up. And it goes on in verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the Lord and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. Come on, say it with feeling. Hypocrites. You hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. That is so good. They measured. Like they have a little garden in their back and they grow like dill and mint. What other herbs do you grow? Um, sorry? Time. All these little tiny plants, little weedy things that um, I don't understand what the difference between them and weeds are. You tie them, you give a tenth of these tiny little piddly little plants that really not, is not really something that God is overly bothered about. And he goes on, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the, the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. You focus on the tiny, piddly little things that really aren't uh, something that you need to be worrying too much about. And you swallow a camel. You strain out a gnat and swallow the camera. It's a joke. Jesus is being funny. All the other people that are listening go, what are these Pharisees, man? Jesus has got no time for them at all. And verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish. Inside they are full of greed and indulgence. It's like my wife's perspective on my washing up. You know, it looks good, but if you ever look close, you realise you've done nothing at all. And, and Jesus is saying, you look impressive, but if you look on closer inspection, you're awful. You're just full of all the rottenness that everyone else is. Blind Pharisees. So they're children of Satan, uh, and they are uh, blind. First clean the outside of the cup, and then the in outs first clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will also be clean. And verse 27, the last woe. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Everyone say hypocrites. 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 You are like whitewashed tombs. You look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean, full of corruption and decay and nastiness. You are full of 
everything that is grim and uh, just worthy of the rubbish heap. In the same way, on the outside, you appear as people of righteousness. You have your Sunday best. You have your wonderful godly language. You have your feeling of superiority. You have your letters after your name and uh, intelligent books on your bookshelf. But on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Jesus explains that these Pharisees, these people, these experts of the law, these people that knew the Torah back to front and front to back, instead of being a blessing for Israel, instead of elevating the Israelites so that they are nearer God, so that they know him well, so that their heart is drawn to them every time they come to the temple, they're a curse. These Pharisees, right in the middle of religion, are a curse on the Jews. They make things worse they're in positions of leadership but they are taking Israel down towards Satan rather than up towards God and the people hadn't recognized it and there were 6,000 of them Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah you know these people had groaned Lord send the one you promised to liberate us Bring in your new kingdom where grace and peace and uh, the Holy Spirit will just abound. But these experts, they looked at him and said, no, that's not him. Definitely, I'd know, I'd know Messiah if I saw him. And this Jesus is not it. You know, he's a bit of a fraud. I'm not really sure he does those miracles. And if he did, we're not too sure whose power he draws on to do them. And so they slam the door of salvation shut on themselves and uh, anyone that gives him credit, you go, no, you're wrong. These professors of scripture, they've crossed seas and mountains to be great missionaries for God, but they would lead people into their own wisdom, their own teaching. They wouldn't show them God. They'd go, come and let me tell you about uh, the pharisaical law that I've got. And the convert they made is no better off. They've done this wonderful missionary trip and rescued a soul, but they've done nothing of the sort. This convert is no more free than he was at the beginning. The Pharisees were diligent in tithing. They gave a tenth of their tiny garden herbs in the back. I wonder how many of you feel obliged to tithe your garden herbs or your tomatoes on your allotment uh, to the church. I, no one has ever come to me, ever, in however, since 2005, and said, here is a tithe of my uh, allotment or my garden uh, produce. Hopefully, we've just sort of converted it in our mind into finance, and then we've just popped it in the back in cash. Um, but these Jews were so fastidious in their tithing that they would tithe the minutest thing. And they spent a lot of time sort of working out these small things. But they completely missed peace, mercy, justice, goodness, righteousness. All these big themes that come throughout scripture. And he goes, you're more worried about tithing your mint than you are about making sure justice and peace and goodness reverberate in the people of God. 
you care more about this technical thing than you do about love. These authorities, these experts, they looked holy. They sounded holy. They made you feel guilty and awkward. So, of course, that must mean they're holy. But they're obsessed. They're obsessed with their own comfort. They would seek the place uh, most honoured at a meal. They would seek to accumulate wealth. They would seek the finest things of life. I wonder if you've encountered religious people like that. Because they're quite common indeed. They get a mic, they get a ministry, they get a platform. And they sound amazing. And they can be charismatic and gifted. And they can have the weight of learning that, uh, uh, on their shoulders that just makes them sound compelling. But they're not successful because they bring love. They're not successful because they bring people nearer to God. Their private lives are full of self-promotion and greed and resentment and entitlement. All these things are in everyone else's hearts. And we encounter those. And sometimes they get exposed. So we're living through uh, a period where various Churches and church leaders are being exposed as being less than ideal. And what it can make you do is you can dismiss Christianity. You go, well, you know what? This whole Christianity thing, all of it is nonsense. Uh, you know what? These guys being named and shamed, I'm just going to dismiss the whole thing because it's just not worth it. Or we can make it a very private thing. You know, I follow Jesus in my heart, but I'm not really interested in, in churches and all their pastors and leaders and elders uh, and, and things. And, 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 and we can sort of make Christianity very small. But the thing is, it's not just church leaders that behave like this. It's not just people in charge of churches and ministries. But the rank-and-file Christians can be exposed like this as well. We can have an impressive-sounding faith. You know, we can sound spiritual. We can sound spiritual on a Sunday morning. We can sound eloquent at home group or at the prayer meeting. We can sound sophisticated on the street as we give reasons for our faith and how everyone else needs to follow Jesus too. But in our hearts, we're selfish and greedy. We are hypocritical in what we say and what we do. And we behave like everyone else. Hopefully, as you know, we are confronting various questions of God in Scripture. So we're going through them. Can I confess, we're not going through them in like one, some profound theological order. I'm just coming across them, and then we're just going to do them like that. Um, but the, the idea of these questions of God are ones that he poses of humanity and says, you need to get to grips with this question and work out your answer because it will reveal your heart and your, your status, your relationship with me. And what I'm trying to do is we tend to alternate Old and New Testament just to uh, keep you awake um, on a Sunday morning. And so uh, this week we're looking at questions posed by Jesus and some of you have wondered how on earth I've spent last sort of quarter of an hour getting up to the question that the sermon's about. 
Today's question is spoken out in the atmosphere of these Pharisees. I really want you to get a feel for who these Pharisees are. I want you to get a feel for what they're doing to the spiritual life of Israel. I want you to get a feel of where they're leading Israel towards. And so as these Pharisees are slamming the door of salvation, as they're tithing their mint and then neglecting love and justice, we have this one verse they're going to read out. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Just one single verse. It's the uh, first question Jesus asks in Matthew's Gospel. It says this. You are the salt of the earth. Everyone say salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness... How can it be made salty again? Everyone say, how? How? How can it be made salty again? Can it? Does it? Can you recharge salt? Can salt become unsalt? Have you ever encountered non-salty salt? Can you buy non-salty salt from the supermarket? And he goes, Jesus goes on, he goes, non-salty salt is no longer good for anything. What's it good for? It's good to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And that is not um, a nice thing. Jesus is not saying, you know, it's good for tarmac. It is a, uh, a sort of euphemism for hell. This is the first question Jesus asks in Matthew's Gospel. And it appears slap bang in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount. You know, this incredible speech Jesus gives. And it covers such a vast array of different things um, that it makes your head spin with all the subjects and all the different ways. You go, oh, I've come up short there. Oh, I didn't see it like that. That's a new way of thinking. And, 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 and Jesus just touches all these different things and, uh, and, and people come away uh, sort of challenged and lifted up. And the men and women who've dedicated their lives to Jesus and, and following him, they draw near. They're, 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 the, they're, the, they're the principal people that this is addressed to. And uh, Jesus wants to give them wisdom that will last. You know, he's thinking, you know what, Matthew, I'm hoping you'll write this down and it will become a gospel. And then that church in Bubish 2,000 years later is going to read it. So he, he's doing it with all this in mind. For generations to come, he's hoping this would be written down for. So he, he, if he knows the sense of occasion and that it's going to get recorded. And he talks about salt. And he says, you're the salt of the earth. He's not talking about anyone. He's not talking about lots of different peoples and uh, cultures. He's talking to Israel and he's specifically talking to his disciples. He goes, you, disciples, the 12 and then the others... You're the salt of the earth. And before we need to know that, you need to know a little bit of geology. Salt is sodium chlor uh, chloride. It's a mineral. doesn't naturally occur in salt shakers in the supermarket. You know, it doesn't grow there. I don't know whether you knew that, but uh, salt just doesn't appear in Tesco's. It has to be taken from the earth. It's a mineral. It comes in deposits. That's where salt is. Many years ago, in England, it was covered with vast inland seas. And 
the hot temperatures came and evaporated the waters. And what it does when the waters evaporated from sea, uh, can you guess what's left behind? Salt. Um, so large salt deposits can be found in England under the earth. Um, and this is especially true around um, the region of Cheshire. And uh, in Winsford, I didn't know whether you know this, is the UK's largest and oldest mine. Can anyone guess what it mines? Salt. Salt. Leading you by the nose here. Um, and, and so in Winsford, Cheshire, is the UK's largest and oldest mine. And what they do, they go down into that mine. Um, this is not like yesterday, right? This is a bit of an olden days picture. It's a little bit more theatrical. Um, it's a bit more sophisticated nowadays. But they go down and they separate the rock salt, which is down in these deposits, and they separate it from other minerals. So they, they, they take out the salt and leave behind the other detritus. And uh, um, the salt that's mined goes on your roads, you know, to make that horrible green, that horrible grey slush that gets um, sort of uh, lifted up into cyclist's face as you motorists drive 70 miles an hour down the dual carriageway. Um, so thank the Lord for that mine, eh? So that, that, that's how sort of salt's got from Winsford. And um, modern industry is familiar with separating salt from the various other minerals. But the Hebrews, they were a little less sophisticated in their measures. They just found rocks by the Dead Sea that had salt deposits in them and used them for salt. You know, they, they'd use it to preserve meat and they'd use it to flavour their food. Uh, um, if they're anything like uh, my kids, they would have used far too much over anything because they just love salt uh, and uh, it just makes anything taste sort of interesting. And, and so the, the Hebrews would have these rocks with salt deposits in them. And, uh, but what it means is that if you have a rock with salt in it rather than actual pure salt, the salt can leach away. Um, there's a, uh, an ancient story of a local merchant uh, and uh, he, he wants to avoid the salt tax, which perhaps is like the bedroom tax, you know, something you're trying to duck and dive around. Um, and so he has this vast store of salt brought over, um, or salt in rock, and he hides it in these mountain cabins, you know, so the tax collectors don't come. Uh, and, um, but what he does, he leaves these, um, leaves these rocks with salt in them, uh, on some damp earth, and, and, and so he goes away thinking how oh, the tax collector's not, um, uh, not been able to find my salt, and he lives his life, and then he comes back to sort of uh, 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 take some salt and make a pretty profit. Um, but what it, because it's on the damp soil, all the salt leaches out of the rock, and he becomes penniless, like ruins him, because all the rock that had salt them loses all its saltiness. And Jesus is speaking to people, and that is their experience of salt. He's saying, you, you know what, this, the, you are the rock, and you can lose your saltiness. You can lose all the goodness that, that was in there. And he says, you my disciples, you are those rocks of salt, and you are to spread the good news of the kingdom, and you're going to be, uh, you're going to bring life to things. You know, you're going to bring, uh, you're going to preserve goodness, and you're going to make things taste better, and, and you're just going to be welcomed in many ways. And so followers of Jesus today are the same. We're to be salt of the earth. We're to live out our lives 
with a divine deposit in us. It's not, I'm afraid, that sort of Rachel and Dom and Wendy uh, and David, that you're so remarkable on your own that the earth needs you. It's this saltiness that God has put in you that makes you uh, uh, something flavoursome and attractive and helpful to the world. And so Jesus says, you're the salt of the world because you've got this sort of divine deposit in you. And the devil is all about decay, and he's all about death, and he's all about distortion, uh, and he's all about just ruining and corrupting stuff. And, and you're the antidote to that, my friends. You are the solution. When things are going wrong, that's when Christians step up and they make things uh, uh, better. The Pharisees looked salty, but they were useless. They were children of Satan. They were uh, just, the only thing they could be good for is throwing out. And so the, the Pharisees were no better than the Egyptian Magi. They were no better than the Greek philosophers and no better than the pagan Druids. They had no divine essence to them to uh, make life better for other people. They just weighed them down with rules and regulations. And so we have this edict, this pronouncement over Christians, this thing that Jesus says. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are. Not you're going to be if you pray hard enough. Not uh, you have been. But you are the salt of the earth. You are the thing that makes life taste better for other people. The world will be bland and rotten without Christians in. But we must stop our sliding into tastelessness. We must seek to have that deposit of God in our lives. Laziness can lead to the loss of that deposit. Or if you listen to the Pharisees, just being obsessed with the wrong stuff. You know, stuff that you control rather than the bigger picture. Rather than uh, sort of making yourself the subject, making God the subject of stuff. And so we need to cherish our saltiness. Make sure it's there at all times. And it's not rocket science. This is not something, some new discipline that you learn to become salty. You are salty when you know your Heavenly Father. When you know Him. When you spend time with Him in prayer. You can't expect to be salty if you don't know your Heavenly Father. The Pharisees knew the Scripture, but they didn't know the author. You become salty and know the sun in worship when you sing when you lose yourself when you forget about all the things you have to do when you suddenly just concentrate on what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection when you concentrate on the Holy Spirit and look to hear something from him and to give something out you become well acquainted with God and you become salty and when you follow the Spirit at every step, rather than look 
on the internet for guidance over which thing to buy or which place to go or anything else when you listen to the Holy Spirit and say, you know, what path should I take? What job should I have? Where should my kids go to school? Um, what shop should I go to? Like every step you can seek out the Holy Spirit and it will make you salty because you become familiar with his values. You become familiar with um, the things that he enjoys. You become familiar with his voice. I wonder how that's going for you. My salty people. How is your saltiness going? Are you full of flavour? Or is your religion limp, pathetic and powerless? Is your faith full and vigorous? Or is it a little bit fetid? Is it a little bit voiceless? Is it uh, just a hodgepodge of half-thought-through ideas? Does your faith even break into your daily routine? Now, I'm not talking about Sundays, because most of you have dragged yourselves out of bed and made an appearance, which, God bless you, is more than half of uh, Christians manage to do. But does he make an appearance in your daily, in your, uh, in daily routines? Does, do you have a moment where you uh, expose yourself to the saltiness of God? sort of when you wake up to when you go to bed? Or do you just have all sorts of other schedules that kind of block him out? And it just means that there is no uh, opportunity for God's presence to be impacted on your life and then for you to be able to touch others. And so we need a personal, spiritual uh, um, discipline that we come close to God as much as possible. But there's this other aspect. You, we must allow this saltiness to change things. You are salt of the earth, and the attribute of salt is that it changes other things. It can preserve meat, and it can make even salads taste nice sometimes. And so the idea is, your presence in the world should have an effect on the world. One way is to champion good things in society. When we see things that we know are heavenly, we're familiar with our Heavenly Father and we know what he likes, we go, that is really good, let's elevate that, let's celebrate it. I know this is like a, um, a flippant remark, but so music... I mean, I know not all music's great, and you probably don't like the music I like, and vice versa. But there is music, and some of it's really good, and you don't have to be uh, a particular, in a particular music tribe to appreciate it. And we go, you know, that's good music. Let's elevate it, let's celebrate it, let's enjoy it, because it is something good and right. Nature, like trees and flowers and sort of foxes and stuff like that. I quite like them, and it's good to keep them going because God created these things. I know we need tarmac and roads and streetlights, but 
Um, it, it's good to, to celebrate the good things around us. It's good to celebrate honesty and truth and all these things. And we lift them up and go, yeah, they're brilliant. Let me um, accentuate the taste of those. And then there's bad stuff that we go, you know, we've got no time for it. Particular types of relationships and identities and particular uh, political leanings and uh, 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 particular sort of greediness and materialism. We go, you know what, that, that doesn't have a place with us. So we're going to reduce those. We're going to diminish them. We're not going to accentuate them. They're not going to be found in our lives. The world has all sorts of standards, but they are confused they are wretched, and a lot of them have, um, as uh, C.S. Lewis said, are farther below as their author rather than God Almighty. And this is true for your friends and family, your media and society. They'll all have values that are not God's. And they'll go, this is what is right. And you know what? You don't listen to them. You listen to what God says. By our spiritual discipline of sticking next to the triune God, we can look at the world and go, you know what, that's brilliant. Let me elevate that. And then that is not so good. Let me diminish that. That love and mercy and justice and forgiveness, I'm going to push that up and make it loud because it, it is just something that my, excites my God. But there are ideas on earth that parade as goodness. You know, that use clever language and sophisticated presentation techniques. But our closeness to God goes, yeah, that's not right. You're saying that thing is good, but, but I know it isn't. They're, they're lies dressed up as something else. And these must be challenged. As a salty person, you need to challenge the sin. Now, sometimes these things are challenged softly and gently. You know, when uh, Jesus came across that woman caught in sin, um, he didn't uh, sort of uh, throw her to the walls. Took her aside, kind, gentle word, and stopped all the belligerent, prejudiced sort of Pharisees who wanted to throw rocks at her and go back off. And sometimes we've got to violently oppose stuff so often like sort of personal like sin and confusion we can do it gently and sometimes the people in power that are doing all sorts of grim stuff we go you know what i want to protest against that um we're near gatwick and there's always a protest on there one way or another and i often find myself thinking i think jesus has sympathy for a lot of these things i realize um, so I realise a lot of the colleagues I work with hate anything that inconveniences them. That makes it difficult to get into work and stuff. But people that protest the treatment of some of the immigration guys that come in, I think Jesus has sympathy with those. People that resent the way that we are pillaging the earth for greed and materialism, I think Jesus has sympathy for that. There were some other people that I think of that I quite liked as well, but they had gone out of my mind. Um, but sometimes when it's, it's powerful people doing stuff, we get to be violently objective as well, um, objectionable, and just go, that's out of order. Our saltiness compels us to challenge the decay in our society. 
And as I've gone through all these, this is what you ought to do, and you're all rubbish, and this, well, I don't know what you've heard, hopefully it's not exactly that. But I want to end with a really nice paragraph from C.S. Lewis about saltiness, just to end with a nice taste on our taste buds. So this is in Mere Christianity, and it's always difficult for me to think of Jesus talking about salt without not remembering this. Suppose a person who knew nothing about salt. You give him a pinch to taste, and he experiences a particularly strong and sharp taste. You tell him that in your country, people use salt in all their cookery. Might he not reply, in that case, I suppose all your dishes taste exactly the same, because the taste of that stuff you have given me is so strong that it will kill the taste of everything else. But you and I know that the real effect of salt is exactly the opposite. So far from killing the taste of the egg, and uh, this is a victim of uh, the times, and tripe uh, and cabbage, it brings the taste out. They do not show their real taste until they've added the salt. Of course, as I warned you, this is not really a very good um, illustration because you can, after all, kill the other taste by putting in too much salt. Whether you cannot till, kill the taste of a human personality by putting in too much Christ, but I'm doing as best as I can. It's sometimes like that with Christ and us. The more we get, the more we get what we call us, um, now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions of millions of little Christs, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men and women that you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are waiting for us in him. Friends, you and I are the minerals God has put in Bubush. And Jesus' question is, what's it good for when it loses its saltiness? It's not good for Bubush. So the encouragement is be salty, draw near to Christ. Let his flavour and character touch you and through you touch uh, this uh, place that we live. Please bow your heads Jesus I thank you that you call us salt of the earth that we are something that the world desperately needs even though it sometimes doesn't know it Lord God I pray that you would help us be a salty people let us not be Pharisees let us not just be experts in religion let us not be just good followers of the rules let us not just be mouthy and opinionated but Lord God I pray that we would draw near to you that we would have your love in our hearts for other people and Lord God that we would uh, accentuate the good things that we would lift up mercy and love and justice and goodness and that Lord God decay and rottenness uh, would be pushed away and, and Lord God I pray as we are salty, oh God, I pray that other people would draw near to you too.
fair, for you are the giver of good salt. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.